Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. Thank you. I just feel like my whole life course has been impacted so horrifically that if the police response had been different, it didn't even have to be remarkably different, but just anything that held the perpetrator to some level of accountability, it would have actually completely changed my life. Last week, I introduced you to Kathy Oddie, and today is part two of my interview with her. Kathy was a guest of mine at my The Stalker show last month, and we only had a really small window for Kathy to tell us about her experience with a man who stalked her for 10 years after their three and a half year relationship ended. In that relationship, Kathy survived extreme violence and stayed in the relationship due to a genuine fear that he would carry out the threats he continually made, not just to Kathy, but to her friends and family as well. And her fears were very well founded. He'd threatened her with a gun, with a knife, he'd broken her finger, he'd stomped on her head, he'd put her head through a plaster wall. It really is a miracle that Kathy survived. She began to slide into a world of hopelessness and helplessness. And when she finally did find the courage to go to the authorities, no reports were taken, no referrals given. Instead of curling up into a ball and becoming disenchanted and detached from the world that she was living in, Kathy began on a path of redemption, using her experiences as a victim of numerous serious crimes to help others not experience what she has. Kathy discovered that there were people and organisations who could support her, and this opened up a whole new world to her, culminating in her making a submission and giving evidence at the 2015 Victorian Royal Commission into Family Violence which resulted in two of her recommendations being listed, one of which led to the review of the Victims of Crime Assistance Act, which was tabled to Victorian Parliament in 2018. So continuing on from last week, Cathy takes us through the inroads that police have made regarding their response to domestic and family violence as opposed to the inadequate responses as I said before, plural, (laughs) that she received when she initially tried to report her perpetrator's abusive behaviours. She was treated this time with respect. She was believed and the perpetrator was interviewed and charged. I wonder how Cathy's life would have turned out had she been believed the first time that she tried to report the crimes committed upon her by her perpetrator. But Cathy's come out the other side much stronger and determined to help and support as many victims of significant abuse as is possible through her advocacy work. 
She works in crisis response these days and what better support for those poor people seeking help than to have someone talking to them with that lived experience. I hope you get something out of this week's podcast and maybe if not for you, for someone that you care about. Anyway, have a great week. Thank you. Yeah, we've um, you've touched on the reporting process and what happened. Um, so that's a, a, a nice segue into the next thing I was going to discuss with you was the reporting and the court process that you initially went through in seeking an intervention order was horrendous. Uh, I can't think of a, another word. It was just, yes, horrendous with you being treated really with disdain and appearing like you were well, not appearing, you weren't believed. And unfortunately, you ended up representing yourself resulting in an intervention order not being granted. But what you put in that intervention order and how it, could you, for those people who haven't uh, sought an intervention order before, you, you get to put in a couple of paragraphs about why you want the intervention order, what has happened. And you actually, what you wrote, in fact, have you got that there, what, yeah, what you wrote? Because, because I don't think the listeners will believe it either, but how you could not be granted an intervention order uh, is just uh, beyond me. Yes, so this intervention order um, application was on the 8th of December 2006 with the final hearing being in January 2007. But before I read it out, I want the listeners to be really aware that this wasn't the first report. So in 2004 when the stalking commenced, I actually did report that to Northcote Police um, and a sergeant was the person who took my statement and report. Um, It didn't even bother to speak to John or do any real investigation, even though I went into thorough detail about the level of fear I was in and also the seriousness of stuff that was happening. So nothing happened in 2004 to him. Then 2005, no, he continued with his offending and it kept um, escalating to a point where one night um, he'd been calling me and texting me all day, like probably over 100 times, and it got to this moment where I just wanted to go home. I was out in the city with my cousin for her birthday and I'd become separated from her. And at that moment when I'd normally catch a taxi home, I was sitting in a bus stop going, I just want to go home. But if I go home, I might die. And in that situation, it actually ended up being these backpackers that I'd met that evening seemed the safer option to go for a walk with them. And then I ended up being raped by one of these backpackers because I didn't feel safe to go back to my own home. And the following morning, I actually wasn't ready to report the rape, but I was reporting to my local Brunswick police how, no, over this stalking and harassment I was, got told, go out to the court, but I wasn't ready to at that point. Then a few days later, I actually was ready to report the rape and I did. And I went into detail very thoroughly in the rape statement about the stalking harassment that I'd experienced by this perpetrator. And the people who are investigating the rape by this backpacker literally ignored everything that I was saying about all this serious offending by John and just focused on the rape. So 2004, 2005, I've already reported these in statements is actually statements, um, which was for me astounding because most times I've reported stuff in the past to police, they haven't even written anything down. Then come to this point in 2006 where, yet again, he's not stopped his behaviour because no one has ever told him to stop. He's, he feels like he's invincible. Um, that I encountered him, you know, when I was out and about in our suburb and he threatened to kill me and then followed it up with um, a really you know, nasty text message. And like within 15 minutes of getting that message, I took myself up to Brunswick Police Station and showed the person on duty, this is what I've just received. Um, I've also had a verbal threat to kill um, in the context of really serious um, history of family violence. And all I was told by that person was, 
you need to go out to Broadmeadows Magistrates Court and speak to the Family Violence Registrar. So when I got out there, um, this is what the registrar helped me write in um, for the um, intervention order. So this is what I wrote. Thank you. The defendant and I were in a relationship for three and a half years, which ended two years ago. On the 19th of the 11th, 2006, he phoned me and threatened me after seeing me at the Cornish Arms Hotel. He then sent a text message, fuck you, you want war, you got it. He has been harassing me for the past two years, since October 2004, um, with phone calls and stalking me. In October 2006, he bailed me up in the car park of the Retreat Hotel and would not let me leave. Anytime he sees me in public, he approaches me and makes threatening comments. The defendant was extremely violent towards me in the time we were together. He broke my finger and threatened my life many times and that of my family. He has access to weapons and he is emotionally unstable and alcohol and drug affected. He has made threats to shoot me and I'm confident he could get access to a gun. He has a violent history against other people as well, making me extremely afraid. And the magistrate did not grant an intervention order. No. So the first two magistrates that heard the initial application and then the um, extension to the interim order were quite compassionate magistrates. And I also had taken my older brother and my best friend who both as support people and as witnesses um, to those first two times. The final hearing, which I didn't know at the time was going to be the final hearing, um, was a completely different circumstance. So even in the lead up to it, I should have clicked that something was going on in that a couple of days before the scheduled hearing, um, the person who John was now seeing, a new woman, she actually um, approached me when she saw me out and about um, in Brunswick and bailed me up and was basically saying to me, you need to stop what you're doing with the intervention order, you need to drop that. And I said, well, no, I won't be. Um, She goes, well, you know, you're lying, these things haven't happened. I said, well, to all due respect, you don't know what I've experienced, so I'm not really interested in your opinion. And she was actually let me know some very critical information. She's like, well, if you go through with this and it gets granted, he could actually get sent to prison because he's currently on a good behaviour bond for defrauding Centrelink. And, no, do you want to see him go to prison trying to make me feel guilty? And I'm like, if he's done these things and this is the outcome, then that's only his problem, not mine. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So I didn't know at this point that he'd been served with the order because no one had actually told me because I knew he was evading being served. Um, so if the police had just told me he'd been served, then I would have made sure when I turned up at this hearing in January of 2007 to make sure I had witnesses and support people and probably legal representation. So on the day that it did happen, I'm turning around the corner to go into the car park next to the um, Board Meadows Magistrates Court and I see him and an old housemate of mine standing out the front having a smoke. Now, this particular housemate was someone that was a friend of his that he installed, that John installed into my house that didn't care less about what John did to me. In fact, I remember this one occasion where John was smashing my head down on the kitchen bench and this housemate did nothing. So I knew when he was not going to be of support to me on this day. So seeing John and this housemate and instantly put me into panic mode, course, I yeah. had to then walk past them to get into the court and they're making these awful comments as I'm walking. I'm just literally shaking in a puddle of tears as I'm walking in and I go up to the family violence registrar and just say, look, I didn't realise he'd been served. I thought this was just another extension of the interim order, um, but he's here. Um, what do I do? I don't have my support people with me because, in fact, I'd told my brother and my best friend, don't bother coming and taking more time off work. If it's an extension of I can do this, I can I can adult this myself, um, yeah. not wanting to put people out, and that was such a big mistake because then the the guy who was the registrar on the day, he, he saw how distressed I was and he says, do you want to speak to 
um, the applicant support worker. And uh, I'd never, and this is my third time at the court, um, my third time ever in court, and this is the first time I'm being told there's actually a role of someone called the applicant support worker. Um, And I'm like, yes, please. And he tells me to sit down and about five minutes later he points at this woman and for me to go to, and I said to him, is that the applicant support worker? And he nodded. I went and I asked her when I went to her, I said, are you the applicant support worker? And she said, yes. And then I told her some additional things that had happened since I'd actually lodged the initial um, application for the IBO. Um, And she was being quite cold and I didn't understand it at the time because then she was saying things like, well, um, do you think you could go with an undertaking or are you seeking the order? And I'm like, well, he won't actually honour an undertaking. It needs to be an order. And she's like, well, he has legal representation. Uh, I said, well, if he does, then I absolutely need to have legal representation. And I said to this woman, I don't have any of my support or witnesses here. Um, And what I really need to have happen now that I know that he's here, that he's got legal representation, I would want this adjourned. And it was only when I'm in the courtroom um, that I find out who this woman is and it's his lawyer. And uh, the magistrate that I got in the in the court, so when I'm sitting there um, and, you know, you, you're swearing on the the affirmation on the Bible, all those mm. things, um, I don't know how to this day had the presence of mind to actually say to him, this needs to be adjourned because this woman here has misrepresented herself as um, the applicant support worker. She's actually his lawyer. And he's like, well, no, we're proceeding. I said, well, I don't have any legal representation. I don't have my support people. And he says, you've had more than enough time to prepare for this. We're going ahead. And I said, well, my dad is literally on the road down to come here right now. Is there any chance, because this was the morning session of having this delayed until later today and he says okay we'll put this off until the afternoon session but if um no it hasn't arrived then we'll be proceeding and it left the court I still hadn't seen the applicant support worker I'm calling every single person I know who's witnessed what I've gone through um to call everyone was busy the afternoon session gets called in um and I'm having to proceed with it and to the thing that I, I just, it was the most horrific part of it was when I actually had to question him and I had not prepared myself in any way, shape or form that I would have to do that. And I, my mind just went too much. Like I know that I was it would. trying to sum up every legal scene in a courtroom that I'd ever seen in my life. But the fact is I was going to that knowing that my, you know, perpetrator was very much a goodwill hunting sort of individual that he would laugh to me about how he liked to read law books just for the fun of it so that if he got like a you know, ticket infringement or something like that, that he could talk his way out of it in court. So mm-hmm. I just remember putting whatever questions I did to him there on the day and he just denied, denied, denied. And what was the crux of the matter on that day was that because I wasn't able to present on my phone to the magistrate in that moment the text message that um, had been the abusive text message that I referred to when I read out that he said that this was just a he said, she said matter. Now, if I'd been able to produce that text message in that moment, it would be different. And I could not believe that because I'd shown it to a police officer. I still can't. I still can't. shown it to the family violence registrar. I'd still had my phone. And stupid me had deleted it only three days earlier. But Here's someone in their 20s who's never dealt with court processes. Yes, it would be common sense not to delete a bit of evidence, but when you've shown it to all these people in authority, that, yeah, and so I left that court and I said to this magistrate, I said, you have put my life at risk. I walked out of there and finally the applicant support worker finds me. I collapse on the floor. The You would. Uh, no, John, my old housemate and the, his criminal lawyer, um, walk out high-fiving and laughing and they left and this is the point my dad finally arrives from Ballarat and he just sees me in this really really you know awful state which I feel like awful to this day thinking he had to walk in and see me like that um the, the, the upshot of what happened with John is that that yet again gave him ammunition. He went back to Brunswick and was basically putting back to the the community there that 
no, I'm clearly uh, this big liar because, no, the magistrate hadn't granted the order, so I must be full of it. And it yet again fueled him feeling completely invincible and he continued from 2007 to keep stalking and harassing me right through to 2014. And I didn't report it till till the end again because why did he stop? Um, well, the real reason he stopped, even though I'd ha- I did manage getting an intervention order in 2011, um, but that didn't actually stop him, as I didn't think it would. What really stopped him, I think, is him seeing that um, I was in a a lasting relationship with a new man. Unfortunately, this new man was my new perpetrator, but. I think it's like when you've got two sharks in an enclosed space. I've got these two predators in my life at this stage and I think what John could see was that the second predator wasn't going to be someone that he could stand up against. Oh, God, there's so much there, Cathy. Um, Like... How that wasn't granted is there was there's just so many wrong things there. Um, shockingly inadequate is something that comes to mind. But but then in 2010, you're unfortunately required to seek another intervention order due to John's partner due to John's behaviour hmm. escalating again. But this time it was a completely different experience. So what changed? Can you tell us about the changes? Because this also shows that, yes, it's a very, very slow wheel uh, that is turning with the, the justice system, but it is changing, isn't it? Well, um, the, the difference... It completely changed, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was sort of like poles apart in what I experienced. So, one, to be believed and have action taken by police. So when I reported to police... Um, they no actually question him. A statement was taken. Um, an arrest occurred. Um, there was the family violence safety notice that was issued um, right from that first day, and then a hearing followed up um, in the week after at um, what was not Broad Meadows Magistrate Court. Thank God, because I never want to go inside that building ever again in my life. But it was the Heidelberg Specialist Family Violence Court, which was a huge difference. So um, when I went there for the hearing, these were the key things too. So, well, now I had a more knowledge of how the system works, so I knew to ask. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. So I knew mm-hmm. to ask to speak to an applicant support worker, and I also asked them to provide identification to me. Um, I made sure that I was sat in an area that was completely separate to where he was. Um, in terms of. Um, the hearing itself. It was a closed hearing at the Broadmeadows one. It was an open hearing where any Tom, Dick or Harry could walk in or out, which I found so humiliating. Um, and the fact that the um, the police officer who'd taken the statement, so there was a police member who was actually applying for the order on my behalf. And that yeah. was the biggest difference for me because it meant I didn't have to think of all the right legal language to use. All I had to do was get up and advise what things he'd been doing. Um, And in this case, the order was granted um, and wasn't opposed. And um, afterwards, uh, so it was a 12-month IVO that was granted. And then another huge difference from the first time around for me was that – Berry Street contacted me um, to ask whether I'd like a referral to any um, counselling services, um, which was huge. How it should be. How it should be. Like at that time I actually had engaged with counselling because of the stranger rape. Um, So I was linked in Mm. with through victims of crime with a different person already. But I did reflect back to this worker from Berry Street to say, I really am so grateful for you making this call to me rather than me having to be the person. I said, I just wish I'd had this phone call a number of years ago. It would have been life-changing. So from my perspective, like, and this is what I spoke about a lot at the Royal Commission um, hearing where I gave evidence, is that it, it really showed from my experiences how 
you know, you can go through a process to get the same out or the, to want to achieve the same outcome, which is getting the IVO, but you can have very different experiences of the system depending on how know the system works and so that showed me at that point where specialist family violence courts weren't the norm that that was a system that needed to be extended out across all of Victoria known if not Victoria the whole of Australia because Mm -hmm. um, there was a whole difference in the way like going to court is never a fun experience it's always traumatic but it was so much less traumatic that second time well the as opposed to, you know, that 2006, 2007 experience. And, um, like, I honestly, I have PTSD in and of itself because of what I experienced at Broadmeadows that day. I find it so difficult to go into a court environment just because of that, what happened to me that day on in 2007 with that awful magistrate. Oh, like the, the difference, the huge difference is that, well, there's a lot of differences, but a couple that I can think of that just would have made a huge difference is that you were led through your evidence by a police, a specialist police prosecutor. Um, you were in a, a designated family violence division at the Magistrates Court in Heidelberg. So it's not like you are in amongst everyone else in a court. I can always remember Shepparton. Uh, the court at Shepparton used to be, and I imagine this is what you were um, experiencing sort of in 2005 and six when I think it was, but uh, everybody was in there together and there, were, there was a corridor and you all had to walk down the corridor to, I don't know, go to the court. To go. There was no nowhere where you could not run into the person that you were actually uh, going to be confronting in court and the fact that you've got somebody to help you through the court process, like, and and you don't have to, like, to cross-examine the very person you are petrified of. I just can't imagine, and that has changed. Thank but God. it would want to. That, that is just how could you ever get an intervention order when you are just so nervous, you don't know what you're doing, you're in a, a foreign place, you're, you're so anxious, you're so nervous, you're so stressed. Oh, my God. No and wonder you've got bloody PTSD. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's what's really driven a lot of my advocacy, what happened that day in that court plus a range of other things, but really... I looked at that and go, okay, here I am who's someone, I'm articulate, I'm educated and, in fact, at that time I was actually working um, at Centrelink so I know systems, I know how to navigate a lot of stuff and yet put me in that traumatic, stressful environment and all of a sudden I'm someone who goes to mush, I become enable, not able to express myself the way I want to um, and when you're not supported and you're not guided correctly, what can you expect? But then I also reflect too on the fact that here I am as someone with English as my first language um, and yeah. what if that same occasion you were to put someone who um, lives with a disability, speaks English as a second language or is um, you know, from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander background and the levels of um, vulnerability, you know, increase tenfold um it just it really post these things um triggered so much anger um against how much the system wasn't working for people and so when the opportunity to um become involved in advocacy and being part of um informing change processes i i grabbed hold of that opportunity with both hands and haven't looked back since because Ultimately, I could have stayed in. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The space of thinking I've been failed, I've been let down, no, my life has been, been stuffed yes. up. And honestly, you know, there's been times when you, you do feel that way. But then on the other hand, it, if you say sitting in that headspace, the only person you harm is yourself. So what's been given me, um, it's, it's given me the option to actually move out of that headspace into a space where I've become empowered, um, where it actually being able to speak out about what I've gone through to assist um, agencies, organisation, government departments to understand what navigating these systems is like when you have got that lived experience and to, to be able to provide some alternative suggestions of how they might do things differently. I didn't go into it. For therapy, but becoming an advocate has become extremely therapeutic in my life. And it's actually on some of the days when, you know, because of all this now I suffer from depression, anxiety and PTSD, that on the days when I'm finding it really hard to cope, that the advocacy gets me out of my own thought bubble and being part of the bigger picture of thinking about how this is affecting people on a broader scale. And it, it literally helps me to put one foot in front of the other. Oh, yeah. And not only you, Cathy, it would help other people uh, to put one foot in front of the other because unfortunately with what you've gone through, other people have learned what not to do and, you know, how to, like I have a number of people contact me and I say if you're not happy with the service that you're getting, let's say from the police, ask to speak to a supervisor, ask, like, you can't, it's easy to walk away. I understand that because, you you know, you don't feel believed or you feel ignored, all these things. Like you're a, um, I think I said on Saturday night that um, so many people go to a police station for help and, well, they aren't believed. Or this is, sorry, let's go back. Mm-hmm. This was years ago. I, I know policing has changed an enormous amount, but it had probably want to with the experience that you have had. But, um, you know, you would be seen way back then as, you know, a bit neurotic, as um, a, oh, what do you call them, a um, drama queen. You'd have all these names like, gee, we, we have come a long way, but, oh, we'd want to. And I keep thinking back, if the police had actually responded in the way they should have in that first instance uh, with the police coming to your house uh, when you called the triple O, if they had responded the way they should have, you may never ever have had to go through or you would never have had to go through all this other um, additional stress and violence and just like how you could pick a, a young woman up from a house clearly so distressed, and just drop her at a railway station is just unforgivable. 
Yep. God. Yeah, it's oh, really hard Jesse. thinking about all those times I've been really significantly pale because yeah, yeah. honestly when I think back to all those touch points that I'd had with the police over so many years, yeah. Yeah. if at any point they just had a conversation with him to tell him to stop what he was doing and to leave me the hell alone and to just hold him accountable for his behaviours. Um, if it had happened even once, it would have changed so much and it would have changed the course of my life. And I look now, I've had basically my entire adult life consumed by being abused, raped, living with extreme trauma and it's led to a point where, you know, with the second perpetrator ended with my baby daughter dying and I just feel like my whole life course has been impacted so horrifically that if the police response had been different, it didn't even have to be remarkably different, but just anything that held the perpetrator to some level of accountability, it would have actually completely changed my life. And But yet again, if I no, I can't sit in that space of the past because it's just too painful. Um, so I have to think about where we're at right now. And it, honestly, it does frustrate me when I hear certain people put out, oh, nothing's ever changed. Well, I dispute that because I have seen how much things have changed just in that period of time of 2002 right through to now. And so, for example, um, over the last year I've been working as a specialist family violence practitioner, um, particularly in the after-hours crisis response space, which has meant that I've had a lot of engagement with um, the local Ballarat Family Violence Investigation Unit and SOCKET um, team here um, in regards to supporting the women and children experiencing really horrific abuse and who are in that immediate crisis and needing relocation. And with the introduction of the new MARAM, the Multi-Agency Risk Assessment Management Framework, as well as the um, um, FBIS and CIS, which is the Family Violence Information Sharing Schemes and Child Information Sharing Schemes, that it is really changed the narrative of how organisations um, actually work together um, to get the best outcomes for victim survivors because it means that, for example, I can ring, you know, the family violence unit and say, oh, I'm providing support to this person um, have you still got um, their perpetrator on remand or what's going on there? Um, is there an IVO history? Um, to be able to have that communication between the services, it, it's not something that happened in the past and unfortunately it took um, Luke Batty's murder um, and the Royal Commission to actually instigate these changes to occur, but thank God they have. Could, could you just, if you feel like it, could you just um, give a brief overview of why they have changed in relation to Luke Batty's murder? Because um, there might be people that don't know about that. So one of the, um, the outcomes of having the review of the circumstances which led to Luke Batty's murder by his father um, was that they saw that the communication between different agencies was effectively non-existent. And if that information had been shared between agencies, a much more appropriate and thorough risk assessment could have been done um, to really see that here is a perpetrator who's at a high level of risk of offending at that type of you know, homicidal level and that um, you know, Rosie and Luke needed to be at a much greater level of being protected. Um, Unfortunately for Rosie and Luke, um, that wasn't in place at that time. Um, but you know, what I can, I can say and having seen this in practice, having worked in this space, is that now you know, the, the right arm is talking to the left arm. Okay, yes, there's still a lot of improvements we can work on, but having also, you know, doing the type of risk assessments that we do in the specialist family violence space, 
they're extremely thorough. They're not just concentrating on the current incident. They're also doing a bit of a, you know, taking a history of what's led up to it. Um, and it's also then that opportunity to um, share that thorough risk assessment between like the orange door, between say somewhere like a Berry Street and the police. So then you've got this baseline of information that can be added to for that person. But also, very importantly, it's done with the consent and agency of the victim survivor. So if there's certain things they might want communicated with agency A but not agency B, they have a choice over that. But from a perpetrator's perspective, they don't get that agency. You know, perpetrators right to privacy when it comes to, you know, um, having their history of offending protected. It's not in that space. Hmm. Cassie, how do you deal with in your role as a, a family violence um, counsel, let's say, how do you deal with somebody that has been or is in a situation that you know very well, you have lived experience with that. Do you get triggered often? And if so, how do you deal with it? So that's an excellent question, Narelle, because obviously, you know, being someone who has gone through significant um, violence and abuse, yeah, I wouldn't be human if I didn't get triggered. In fact, of you course. don't even yeah. have to have gone through what I've gone through to get triggered in um, these circumstances. Um, but it's about having a really effective self-care strategies in place and also um, ensuring that you're making use of supervision in your workplace and being able to have um, effective debriefing with your manager. Um, so I'm mindful that there's certain things that will trigger me more than others um, and if I know that that's going to be something that's a factor in relation to a client that I'm supporting, I'll also communicate that to a co-worker or, or a, you know, a manager to say um, this could be a bit challenging, um, can we talk through that or maybe look no, for this particular person maybe we should assign a different worker to that person. Mm. It's not mm. always the case because particularly like in after-hours crisis response, um, you're dealing with what comes in and you're triaging that. No, it could be at 3 o'clock in the morning having a call from um, Ballarat Family Violence Unit um, needing you to place someone um, no, in, a, in crisis accommodation. So you don't know always in that space what's about to come through as the next thing you're going to deal with. But it's, yeah, um, what I've found too is because of essentially living 20 years in crisis response in my own life, that when I'm in a professional space working in crisis response, it actually feels like a space of normalcy for me. Like if I'm dealing with my own crisis, yeah, yeah. it's not the best. But dealing with anyone else's crisis situation, I actually can be really calm in that space. And I, I find too that it's actually weird at points in my life when um, everything's going fine, everything's calm and peaceful, it actually feels quite bizarre. It's almost like you're coming. <laughs> like what's wrong? <laughs> yeah. What's, what's yeah. wrong? Because I feel like my body and mind has become so, in a way, addicted to the adrenaline and the stress hormones of cortisol and things like that that it's almost like having to go on a, a detox, um, which I over the last 20 years haven't had many opportunities because I've kept having crisis after crisis, that those moments that do seem calm and everything seems good, it's like you're waiting for the next blow to hit. But you know the, the really good thing about what you just said then about how you deal with it, and yes, you are human and we all get triggered by things, of course we do, but what I really like and what I get out of what you just said is that you don't ignore the fact and pretend that you're not affected. What you will do is you will reach out, you will speak to somebody, you will tell them how you feel. And I think that's such a oh, wonderful thing to be able to do because I think that was um, or that is an issue with so many people, myself included, you know, when you are uh, struggling with something that you've seen or you've experienced, it's there's this shame about, uh, well, there was, about a stigma about not being able to cope with it. And I just love the fact that you are uh, 
really um, advocating to people. Speak to somebody. Use those processes that are in place at work. They're there for a reason. Absolutely. And the thing is, as people who work in providing care and support and also you know, police officers, in all those spaces where we're supporting other humans, we're actually sometimes the worst offenders of not taking our own yeah. advice. So we're really Absolutely. good at giving <laughs> other people advice about what they yeah, should do. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. And, and I very yeah. much see that reaching out to get support is not a weakness, it's a strength. And it's, There's a fact that, you know, those sessions with your GP for a mental health plan, it's not a called a mental illness plan. It's a mental health plan for a reason because it's about keeping you in that. And I've found that I use all my sessions each year because even if I've had a good month, it's still good. To, it's, it's like going and getting your car serviced. Your car might not necessarily be having anything too much going wrong with it, but it's also preventing future things going really bad by having that touch point that's a safe space that you're not putting that onto your friends and family or, or onto your colleagues because the thing is too, you know, your colleagues are also dealing with all this stuff in the workplace as well. So you need to have a space that's separate from that that's you can be truly honest about impacts to you Um and also celebrate with also the good months as well because that's important because, you know, when, when we're dealing with humans going through trauma, we are very at risk of that vicarious trauma ourselves in addition to what so many people who end up in helping professions, honestly, it's the, you know, for years it's been the dirty little secret but so many of us have had a lived experience of something and traditionally it's been like shut up, don't talk about that. But what I'm really glad to see the evolution is that lived experience is no longer so much seen as the dirty little secret, that it's actually being seen as just another tool in your toolbox, which adds to your strengths and and abilities and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And and you're right. I often say this in a, a lot of my presentations that I have learned and I accept because I didn't way back, you know, in my policing career, that actually reaching out and asking for help is a strength. It is not a weakness because you are admitting, and sometimes that's really hard to do, to admit that you're not coping. Um, But I think you're right. uh, It it is a strength to recognise that, you know what, I do need some help. Hey, so, so Cathy, what would you say to... People out there who are stuck in a relationship right now, uh, like you were way back when, and they're stuck in that uh, out of fear of what might happen if they leave, what would you tell them? What I would tell anyone who's um, going through this right now or is wishing to support someone that they know is going through this is to know that you don't have to go through this alone that there are so many services that exist that will provide you with non-judgmental professional specialist support and it's really important that you are getting that specialist support. So you don't have to know all the numbers in the world. There are just two numbers that I need you to um, remember and that first one being triple zero and that is if you are in immediate danger or risk of harm to call that. And if you're not at immediate risk, but you're wanting to seek to leave your relationship and are wanting to get some guidance on how to do that, because it's often, you know, at a time you leave your relationship, I'm not going to say this to scare you, but can escalate the level of risk. So to talk through with a professional about making a safety plan, about how to leave, about what sort of documents you should store you know, away and all the different bits and pieces that are relevant to your circumstance, because no each person's circumstance is different. So triple um, zero if you're at immediate risk, but if not, 1-800-RESPECT. Now, 1-800-RESPECT, what they'll be able to do is actually refer you on to the local specialist service in your area. Around Australia, there's a whole lot of different services, um, but the 1-800-RESPECT counsellor one will be able to give you some initial phone counselling. It's usually around 30 to 40 minutes that they can provide. Um, but also what is so critical is giving you that referral. So I'm not going to bombard people with loads of numbers, but just those two numbers are the mm. most important to know. Mm. 
And I think something that's come out of our discussion that I've learned, which frightens the life out of me, to be honest, is um, I spoke to a lady up in Queensland with the Red Rose Foundation. Her name is Betty Taylor. Oh, she's amazing. And Oh, my goodness, is she ever. And she spoke about the danger or the sign that of choking in a, and you talked about this before when you were in um, the relationship with John, uh, where he had you up against a wall and he choked you to the point where you lost consciousness. Betty speaks about that. Uh, that is a sign of extreme danger. Yeah, you're seven and more like, times more likely to be at risk of being yes. murdered. And honestly, I look back at the amount of times that he strangled me to the point of you no know, unconsciousness or even not to unconsciousness, but it was many, many times. And I, I look back and just go, I, honestly, there's days I go, I don't actually know how I'm still alive, but also just the impact of the strangulation, the multiple ones. Prior to that relationship commencing, I found it really easy to do academic study and to concentrate and do, and it's one part of me that the fear still sits is that I actually feel like he may have caused me a, a certain level of brain damage from what he's done to mm-hmm. me because the way my cognitive level of how I respond to certain things ever since then has definitely changed. but. There's the fear of actually going and finding out whether that's fact or not, but I know that I've dealt with since then severe neck pain, um, severe tension headaches, like stuff that I never used to experience prior Mm. to that relationship. Mm. So, yeah, um, people need to know if they are experiencing that in their relationship that it's, you know, sort of in the really top of the list of high-risk indicators of that perpetrator being someone who could actually go on to um, ending your life. So if you're experiencing that, you need to speak to a family violence specialist. Mm. One of the the frightening uh, things that Betty also told me, which I wasn't aware of, is that due to the amount of choking in violent relationships, up in Queensland they actually have a strangulation centre. Yes. It's a, yeah, amazing it that they've been like, able to create that. Oh, but, but that just shows how serious that is. And, and like you say, oh, God, if somebody's in a position like that, you've just got to, as you say, ring triple O and remember that 1-800-RESPECT. Goodness me. Absolutely. So, Kathy, so Kathy you've obviously... Uh, pretty amazing really considering what you've been through you've just gone from strength to strength and used the crimes that have been horrendous crimes that have been committed upon you to become just such a fierce and determined advocate for victims of crime I think sometimes a bit like me you know where I am in my life you must pinch yourself as to how far you've come from that frightened little bird fearing every day that you it'd be your last what, what's your proudest achievement in all of your experiences in being a victim of the terrible crimes that you've survived? Well, surviving, I guess, number one. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's pretty important. Yeah, yeah. There's been many moments where I didn't think I could stay alive. Like, no, that there's been many moments where I thought about ending my own life and actually attempted to, but. What's kept me from not going through that is that I've got work yet to do in this space. I'm my my time is not over on this planet. I've got far too much to do, and that being that I've seen the power of how using your story to create change really does create change. And so when I look at achievements wise, being involved with the Royal Commission into Family Violence and having my Um, submission and evidence lead on to those two final recommendations will always be one of my proudest achievements in my life because that is now something that will go on to change the the way that other victim survivors engage with systems. Thousands and thousands of, it's horrible to think that there's thousands and thousands of people who are going to go through this stuff, but to know that um, 
it's not going to just change things for one person but for all people that um, go through this stuff in Victoria. That really has made a huge difference for me. And then getting appointed to the Victims of Crime Consultative Committee and being able to be part of so many of the consultation processes and also be able to see through what that recommendation 106 from the Royal Commission into Family Violence to um, dismantle VOCAT, the Victims of Crime Assistance Tribunal, into now what's going to become the financial assistance scheme um, and to be really involved in the co-design of what that's going to look like because that's going to um, launch later this year and I've also been on the working group designing the new Victims Legal Service which launches um, on the 14th of March. Have a listen to you. <laughs> to know Go, that yeah. now victims are going to get um, across the board a much more comprehensively trauma-informed experience of accessing systems and services as I said, this is what gives me the ability to keep putting my one foot in front of the other, even on days which are really hard. I'm not going to lie. I, have, I still have days which are really tough. That's the nature of living with PTSD, depression and anxiety. But knowing that change can happen, that things don't have to get stuck in the way things were 20 years ago and having the hope that so much yet is to change and if, you know, as organisations are right now are so committed to embedding the voice of lived experience, well, while still people hear, want to hear what I have to say and I keep you know, creating opportunities like today for me to tell my story, well, I'm going to tell it, not because I get joy in sharing these awful experiences but because hopefully it means that you know, people in positions of power can hear how much when things don't work harm they cause to people's lives but also for those experiencing going through these things they can also know there is hope for them after know what they're going through that there is life after the abuse and there is help there for them Mm. look Cathy um thank you and for those particularly who are stuck in a relationship and they don't know how to escape from I think those people would say thank you for just giving them some hope. Uh, But maybe hopefully you've given um, a lot of people strength not to give up. And as you say, that there is support out there and out of your struggles and adversity has come something I'm sure you never, ever expected. And that's to be a light to those who can only see darkness. So thanks. Thank you so much, Narelle, for having the opportunity to talk and it's, definitely changed my life path so all these things I never wanted to have happen to me have also given me a calling in life and and to be an advocate in this space and to work in the spaces that I do um, it's so thoroughly rewarding even though it has its challenges because you know you 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 can see that you're not only changing other people's lives but also in my direct um, service work that I do you're at times saving people's lives as well. And uh, I'm not going to get egotistical about that, but it, it it does really affect you at a deep level when you know that you're part of, you know, playing a part in the destiny of someone else's life and changing that life course for the better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. A good note to end on. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you, Narelle. <laughs> Have a lovely afternoon. Yeah, thank you. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.